Up next is my interview with Karen. Karen is a chef who has lived in various parts of the world with her husband and young son. She's lived in Japan, Sicily, and currently Mexico. So this interview is really cool because we're not only talking about food, but we're also talking about love. And, you know, this interview was very special for me because I started crying during this interview. For the several years that I've lived abroad away from my family, I've missed the comfort of a home-cooked meal, which for my family is how, well, it's one of the ways in which we show love. And I'm sure for many families, it's how we show love to each other. Special occasions, holidays, we sit down, we break bread, we talk, we feast, we smile, we laugh, we connect. And so I hope that you'll listen to this interview and you'll connect with what we're talking about. Food, family, love, home, it's all there and so much more. Welcome to the Are We Home Yet podcast, where we talk to expats about what it's like living abroad and they tell their stories, whether it's the struggles, the joys, falling in love, raising a family, managing a business in another country, and maybe still searching for that place they will one day call home. This is a place where you can listen, the guests and hosts will share, and maybe we'll all learn from these stories that we're all connected in what home means to each of us. I'm your host, Jalila Clark. Welcome to the show. All right, welcome back to the Are We Home Yet podcast. So today I have the pleasure of interviewing Karen. Hi, how are you? Unbelievable. How are you, Jalila? <laughs> I'm great. I'm great. I love that response. I love it. Okay. So Karen, tell me where in the world are you living? Right now, my family and I are in Guanajuato in central Mexico. It's just a short, maybe hour, hour and a half flight north of Mexico City. Okay. All right. And so how long have you guys been living there? Uh, we've just been here for a few months now. Oh my goodness. I love living in Mexico. This is actually the second time that our family has landed in Mexico Mm -hmm. in our travels. The first time we were on the Pacific coast near Puerto Vallarta. Mm -hmm. And so being here in central Mexico, there's so much that's familiar, obviously the language, the food, the music, the, uh, loud roosters <laughs> crowing. <laughs> you might hear some of those in the background while we chat today too. Um, uh, but unlike living close to the beach like we did before, we are here at a very high elevation. We're over a mile high. So hiking up into the hills, like the, the steep hill that our home is on right now, walking up and down the street, Uh, We got severely out of breath getting started. So it took a little bit to acclimate to the elevation, Mm -hmm. uh, much longer than getting used to living in Spanish again. Oh, well, Guanajuato is a beautiful city. It's full of so many welcoming individuals. It's been great to stop and just chat with friendly people who are excited to engage in conversation, whether I'm roaming through the local market or, you know, just asking for directions as I'm getting to know my way around town. And Guanajuato is a really fascinating city in that it's built off of an old mining town. So 
getting to know her way around has been very interesting with all the fascinating tunnels and teeny tiny little alleyways on these bright multicolored buildings. Um, it's really, really easy to get lost or get turned around. Uh, but like I said, the people here have been so friendly and so welcoming. So stopping to chat and ask for directions or whatever has never been a problem. My family and I have actually spent um, quite a bit of the last couple of years, you know, since the pandemic started in Eastern Europe. So my absolute favorite thing about being back here in Mexico has been the abundance of corn tortillas. Oh. Mm -hmm. <gasps> Nixtamalized corn is just not a thing <laughs> in Eastern Europe. So mm -hmm. I couldn't even take the local corn that we could get very easily there to make tortillas. But that was one of the first activities that I did when we landed here in Mexico. I got my hands on some local corn and I was working with another local chef and we literally got down on our knees in the kitchen in front of the metate and we were grinding the corn to make our own tortillas. Oh, there's just something about that toasty, warm corn that, you know, whether it's just a, a stack of steamed tortillas that we have to go with, um, you know, making tacos or uh, the smell of the corn in the air. I don't know. There's something special about it that makes living in Mexico just feel like you're always getting a big hug from the inside. You know what I mean? <laughs> and let's start off by saying this, that that you are a chef. So that's why you're you're able to actually speak so robustly about your your dining experience um because i don't think that i would have been able to to say it like that <laughs> yeah yeah okay so so now actually let me transition into talking about you being a chef because you know now that you spoke about that i'm like well let's just go to food food that's what i want to hear about okay so you know you're a chef as i mentioned how long have you been a chef Oh my goodness. Well, if you ask my younger siblings, they would say always. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I remember from the time I was five or six years old, you know, preparing food and helping my mom make meals for the family. Um, my mother was always really encouraging of uh, self-directed education. Mm -hmm. So from the time I was very young, you know, and I would ask her how to make something, she would say, you know how to read and follow directions, you know where the cookbooks are, go to town. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I really do feel like I've been cooking all of my life. And my son has certainly grown up with that exact same mindset as well. But officially, like actually preparing meals for money, mm -hmm. <laughs> where people actually pay me to do that, that's probably, let's see now, that's been going on since maybe 2008, 2009. And um, I really got deeply into catering, uh, cooking uh, workshops and demonstrations, the pop-up restaurant scene during the time that my husband and I were living in Japan. We delved deeply into all the ins and outs of running a commercial kitchen with the International Montessori School that we founded during the decade that we lived there. And our global culinary adventures actually began when we sold it all in Japan and left because I was invited to be part of this special tiny little cohort of cooking students at a school in Sicily, mm -hmm. in Italy. 
So um, cooking has always been a huge part of my life. And the older I get, the more I appreciate all of the bountiful foods and flavors that we encounter around the globe. And I continue to learn and study with home cooks and professional chefs and just other people who love food everywhere we go. You're from America. Where, where, from, where in America are you from? I grew up in San Diego, California. Mm-hmm. And my husband actually just north in the LA area before his family moved to the East Coast. Okay. And so Southern California, San Diego will always be my hometown. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so, you know, uh, what, so like what prompted you to move abroad to begin with? Well, you know, honestly, this is the point where I always talk about my husband. He has, mm-hmm. he was absolutely the driving experience, uh, mm-hmm. the driving force behind our move outside mm-hmm. of the States. We, had only been married for about three years when he first brought up the idea of moving to another country. He was Mm -hmm. really excited about teaching. And as much as we've traveled internationally, it took me a long time to wrap my head around the idea of actually living long-term outside of the United States. Mm -hmm. But in 2007, he was actually recruited to teach for the largest English language school in all of Japan. And so uh, after lots of discussion, we agreed that that was something that we would do just for one year, maybe two, if we really, really liked it. Yeah, we got to Japan and we fell in love with not just the country, the language, the culture, but the community Mm -hmm. that we kind of fell into there and then continued to build during the time that we were living there. It was really amazing. So, you know, tell us about what was it like living in Japan? Tell us more about the food, the people, the the culture. Well, Japan was really a whole new world for both me and my husband when we made this leap to move abroad. Uh, We got our hands on some language CDs. So we had a couple of key words and phrases under our belts, including, you know, a basic introduction and, you know, where's the bathroom Mm -hmm. uh, and how to order beer, wine, and sake. (laughs) Mm -hmm. We thought that was hilarious, especially since I don't drink alcohol. But uh, apparently these were like the most important words and phrases to learn. But at the time, we literally had never known or even heard of anybody doing what we did, picking up and moving to another country like that. We didn't know anybody who lived in Japan. We didn't speak, read, or write the language. Uh, We didn't even know that much about Japanese food at that point in our lives, honestly, Uh, other than having gone to like a teppanyaki (laughs) grill (laughs) before we got married. But we quickly discovered, uh, again, an amazing global community, both Japanese and foreign residents there that really welcomed us into this, well, it felt like a tiny little town, but it was really a major metropolitan city. Um, We were in central Nagano prefecture. So I was excited to go there because I knew they had hosted the Winter Olympics, so we would have access to winter sports. 
Uh, so we spent lots of time skiing and snowboarding and ice skating, especially in the winter months. Um, but really we were getting to know Japan like after landing there and living there. And it was marvelous to be in a town where we could you know, walk to the supermarket and chit chat with our neighbors that we'd see you know, out growing vegetables in their yard. And we both dived deeply into the study of the Japanese language so that we could get to know people better. And like I said, the longer we lived there, the more it just really felt like we were part of a series of little families within our community. There was the family of people in the English language school where my husband was teaching. And there was like this little family of all of our elderly gardening neighbors that would look after us and bring us seasonal fruits and vegetables that they were growing in their yards. And there was our church family that came together for you know all sorts of activities and events. And then there was this big family of foreign residents, people like us who are you know, brand new to the community and people who had married Japanese locals and been living there for decades. So we're looking forward to you know, recent announcements now saying that Japan is starting to open up for tourist travel again. So hopefully it won't be too long before we can get back to our home away from home in Japan again mm-hmm. and those friends who are just as close as family members. Okay. And, you know, you mentioned having a business there. So how soon after you, or how long did it take after you had moved there before you created the business there? And like, what was the idea behind creating a business in a foreign country? So like, you know, what, what was your plan? Like, what was your goal or your, your hope? (laughs) (laughs) Well, honestly, the initial plan was just for me to go and learn about what it was like to be a Japanese housewife or to Mm -hmm. be a housewife in Japan Mm -hmm. because, you know, I was following my husband and his incredible teaching experience in uh, these different Japanese settings, but the teacher in me just couldn't stay suppressed for that long. So um, actually just a couple of months after I landed in Japan. Uh, A mutual friend introduced me to someone that I partnered up with and began teaching like mommy and me classes Mm -hmm. for uh, mothers with young children who were um, younger than preschool age, infants, toddlers, twos and threes. Um, From that group um, over the years, as those children began to get older and their parents were ready to send them to school. Many of the parents kept asking me, they said, Karen, you know, my child has to go to school now, but I want them to continue studying with you. When are you going to open your own English school? (laughs) Well, my training was actually as a Montessorian. So I didn't have a desire to open up a language school, but what the parents were coming to me with was that they just really wanted me to continue to engage their children. So our international Montessori school grew organically out of those young infants and toddlers that I had been teaching in those mommy and me classes in different community centers. And that became the International Academy of Matsumoto. I had planned 
uh, or I had thought about opening up a Montessori school in the United States before my husband and I went to Japan in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, but I never expected <laughs> that I would do that in a foreign country, in a completely different language or culture. Mm-hmm. And I certainly didn't expect that it would happen as quickly as it did after the birth of my son. We actually opened the school when he was just four months old. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, you know, what What was that like opening a business in a foreign country? Like, you know, what, what were the struggles and joys? Well, again, the school would never have happened without the overwhelming support of the community mm-hmm. that was encouraging it from its inception. Mm-hmm. Um, honestly, if it had been up to me, I would have said, no, I have to wait a few years until, you know, my baby is at least you know, three or four years old, because uh, I had always expected him to, you know, at least be homeschooled, or, you know, if I were going to start a school that he would be one of the students in my class, I never thought that he would still be an infant that I was carrying around on my hip in a sling. (laughs) But um, because we had been living in the community for a few years already at that point, because we had gotten to know so many different parents, all of the resources that we needed were right there in the families and the connections that they had from all of the people that we'd already been teaching over the years. So from that, we actually started the business initially with a Japanese business partner because that was an important part of getting the business established. And we had from that, again, a legal team notaries and uh, business advisors that were able to help make sure that we checked all of the boxes that we needed to in terms of what was required for the city that we were living in and the prefecture or the state that we were living in, making sure that everything was completely legal and compliant. And then I got to know and was constantly introduced to the steady stream of people that came in and out throughout the years that we were operating the school that helped to form our international staff and support team. So everything from uh, business management to website design to marketing for international festivals and events that we had in and around our community to all of the teachers and assistants and guides and helpers that made all of the different events come together in the way that we did. It was definitely a community effort and not something we ever could have done just on our own. Oh gosh, well, the most joyous thing was always just seeing the smiling faces of the children. They would light up with all of the new things that they discovered in their day-to-day exploration of the learning environment that we created. And that was what made working through all of the struggles absolutely vital because we could see literally on a daily basis how what we were doing was impacting not only those children, but their families and their friends and the people that they got to know. We basically created an English language learning environment and we're helping to raise these multilingual, multicultural children in a place where a lot of people didn't think that was possible. So that was always the driving force, creating the kind of learning environment that we wanted for our own child. And I just feel so blessed that we had the privilege of being able to do that in this 
downtown building and open the doors to the friends and the family within our community that continued to sustain us for so many years. Now, there were a lot of challenges, though, that we had to overcome, like the fact that every time we wrote up advertising or marketing materials or contracts or whatever, so much of it I needed to generate in English to make sure that it was conveying what I felt was important for our school. And then we have to go back and forth through this process of translation, make mm-hmm. sure again, things were both legal. <laughs> so we didn't have any problems like that, but also still clearly communicated what it was we were trying to convey. And that's a process in any language, but it's definitely more complicated the more languages you add to the mix. You, how, how did the opportunity in Sicily come about? Oh my goodness. Well, we were actually on summer vacation from school at the time. And I was up late one night <laughs> reading messages from uh, friends in the United States. And somebody sent me this, um, it was an article or an advertisement about this cooking school um, because someone was offering a special scholarship to attend. And I remember reading through it and thinking, oh, wouldn't that be nice if someday we could. And the whole summer, you know, my son, who was five years old at the time, had been just asking, well, what if, what if, what if? And so that question had been bouncing around in my head. And rather than just, you know, skimming past and thinking, oh, wouldn't it be nice someday and moving on, I actually paused for a moment and I thought, well, what if that really could happen right away, not at some random nebulous point in the future? And so before I could give myself too much time to second guess or think about or overthink it, um, I dashed off a quick note to the person who had sent me the information and I was shocked that you know I got an interview with the school and so again before I had time to overthink it I just sent the application and I was accepted and so suddenly my family and I were in the position of actually deciding, you know, are we going to try to stay here in Japan and continue to run our school? Or do we jump on this opportunity once in a lifetime chance of going to Italy and studying food and cooking? And we decided that it was just something we couldn't possibly pass up. And so we sold it all within just a few months. We went from running our school in Japan to living in Sicily and me going to cooking school there. And it was the beginning of an absolutely unbelievable series of leaps around the globe in what I lovingly refer to as our global culinary adventures. And so how long were you there in Sicily? Uh, We were there for three months. So actually the course was 10 weeks. And we arrived before it started and stayed for a little bit after it was over. But originally, um, there was the possibility of a culinary position that I had applied for. And so initially, we thought we were going to remain in Sicily after that was over. And when that opportunity didn't work out, there had actually another opportunity opened up in England And so we left Sicily 
and went to England and we went from there to Mexico. That was the first time that we lived in Mexico. And uh, that was shortly before we actually had a chance to go back and visit some of our friends in Japan before hopping to Australia and New Zealand. Um, we've had a couple of brief stints where we've been back to the United States to visit friends and family in, I don't know, at least half a dozen different states <laughs> across the U.S. Um, before hopping back to Italy again, where I had the pleasure of helping some friends build up a restaurant in a Tuscan castle. And uh, after that was actually when we landed in the Balkans. And so that was when we made Albania our home before uh, wandering a bit around Eastern Europe. Okay. And, and how long did you guys live in Albania? That was kind of our home base of sorts as we explored the Balkans. So we were in and out of Albania for a little over three years mm -hmm. from there, um, exploring Greece and North Macedonia and Kosovo. But Albania felt so much like home so quickly. We just kept going back. And, you know, so then after Albania, then where did you guys go from there? Uh, well, let's see. During the years that we were really based out of the Balkans, we also lived, like I said, in Greece, in North Macedonia on a couple of different occasions, in Kosovo. Uh, but it was after that, after our last stint in Albania, that we came back to North America. <laughs> in fact, it's a really funny story, uh, all connected with the pandemic. Um, we had been really just kind of going with the flow and following opportunities as they passed, as they popped up really during our travels. And at the beginning of 2020, we decided, okay, now is the time that we really want to make some more long-term plans. So in January of 2020, we announced that we were going to be attending a world schooling conference in Vietnam. And we were super excited. My son and I hopped on to Duolingo and started studying Vietnamese, which is mm -hmm. a tonal language for mm -hmm. those who aren't familiar. So it's one of the more challenging linguistic uh, opportunities that we have attempted to tackle so far. Oh, yes, I know it well in China. Wow. <laughs> Ooh, wow. Absolutely. Tones, yes, it's tones, tones. You don't say the right tone. You're you don't use the right tone. You're saying a completely different word. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And it's something that takes a lot of practice hearing if you're not already fluent or conversant or familiar with a tonal language. Mm -hmm. It's something that definitely takes a lot more ear training. So we thought, oh, it was a good idea to make this decision in January. So we have plenty of time to listen and study up and learn, you know, a few more than just the basic phrases that we didn't know when we first landed in Albania out of curiosity from Italy so many years ago. Um, but then, of course, you know, the pandemic came in March and our plans to travel to Vietnam that fall were completely dashed. Um, but we hadn't given up on the idea of actually meeting in person with our world schooling community. And 
there were so many people with whom we had connected online over the years and even in person in Albania, especially. <laughs> Shockingly enough, I've had more clients uh, who are tr families traveling like us that we met up with in person in Albania than any other country in the world in which we've traveled. And so getting an opportunity to attend one of these annual conferences was a really exciting prospect. And obviously that couldn't happen in 2020. And in 2021, there was only a conference in North America and we were still in Europe. Um, but we had the opportunity to return to North America and the conference this year was being held here in the spring in Guanajuato. And we were so excited that we had the opportunity to come here to meet up with fellow um, homeschooling, unschooling, world schooling families just like ours. And so we were excited to book those tickets and get back to Mexico, both for uh, familiar language and culture and cuisine, but also for the camaraderie of a community that we have gotten to know that has been absolutely invaluable in our travels over the years. What was the move like to go to Mexico? So how, how did that come about? Well, we had actually um, traveled back to the U.S. briefly. Uh, it was an unfortunate series of circumstances, uh, death in the family, um, and it provided the opportunity to take care of some administrative things, some basic paperwork that we need as a family for traveling. Mm -hmm. And throughout that time, I stayed connected with uh, my friend Lainey, who was the organizer of this World Schooling Summit. And so as the time for the summit approached, she reminded me that, you know, she was here in central Mexico and would not only happily and welcome our family, but uh, she also asked me if I would be a speaker at the conference too. And I was so honored. Um, my business is our kitchen classroom. Mm -hmm. And it's uh, basically a, an online cooking school um, that sometimes has roots and workshops in person as well. Um, but it allows me to continue to dive deeper into the studies of culinary traditions, the rich histories and uh, languages of the cultures in which we have the privilege of immersing ourselves in our travels. And I love translating that to help parents, other educators and child carers, just like me, invite the children in their lives into the kitchen um, so that they can learn and grow and nourish themselves, body, mind, and spirit. And okay. it's a really fun thing to be able to do because, as I said, my studies are always ongoing. So every trip to the market, uh, every time I have the privilege of hanging out in someone else's kitchen and learning from them, uh, whether it's a home kitchen or a restaurant, uh, I'm constantly learning new things. And it's a joy to be able to share that with my clients. You know, I love all the different, you know, like, things that you can do with food, the different ways that food can come to the table, you know, the process of food, like, I mean, all of that is so fascinating. The, you yes. know, the different cultures yes. and spices, the way that food can speak to us. And, and I'm a true believer that, you know, that when, 
when when I when I make a meal for you, whenever anyone makes a meal for me, it's it's the language of love. It truly yeah. is because it's like that bite. There's several books that I've like read about this. And, you know, one of them is like, you know, first bite, you know, and, and it's like that, that first bite is like your introduction to food from your family and, and the amount of care and concern that's put into it. It tells you so much really about like how much, how much, th- how much, the, the history of the family is speaking to you. And I know that this probably all sounds like way too poetic the way that I'm saying it, maybe because it's seven o'clock in the morning and I'm a little bit sleepy, but it's like, <laughs> but it's like, I just feel like, like food is just, it's just, it's more, it's more than, it's more than salt and sugar and, and umami. It's, it's just, it's the way that honestly, we, we, we spoke to each other as humans before we had the language to really tell each other, I love you. It's like, you know, I would bring you something not just to sustain you, but I would bring you something that, 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 that made you smile when you tasted it. And that when you tasted it years later, you remembered that first smile you shared with me. Like, <laughs> th- does that make sense? Yeah. It makes perfect sense. Okay, I know okay. <laughs> feeling like sleepy, giddy, and extra poetic. Yeah, and yeah. I mean, but I feel so overjoyed when I talk about food because it's like, you know, I think back, you know, and honestly, like, <sighs> I tear up when I think about, you know, my grandmother, like, making food, and it was just such, such an, an amazing experience. <sighs> Gosh, I I don't, (laughs) I I don't know why I'm like, you know, so, um, so like, so like emotional about this, but I think about, you know, you know, my, my family, like every woman in my family, like, like making food for me and like every time that they, they served me that food, it was just, it was such, such an experience of, of, of passion and joy and, um, I guess because I haven't had, <laughs> I guess because I, I haven't had, you know, home cooking for my family in years since I've been in China. I guess maybe, you know, speaking about this, maybe this is why the emotions like are running over. <laughs> um, of yeah. Um, so <laughs> um, don't feel um, bad about it. Food <laughs> is a truly emotional experience. And yeah, that's yeah. one of the things that I love sharing with my clients. And I tell you, I work with a lot of parents who want to convey that joy, that passion, that love that you're feeling right now as you reflect (laughs) on those memories of your grandmother and the other women in your family who have fed you. Because as you said, it does more than just sustain our bodies. It really nourishes the interpersonal connections, the deep family relationships. It's a sharing of our hearts and our souls, of our history, of our culture, of the land on which we're living, of the lands from which we have come, the earth from which the ingredients have grown up out of the ground. And food brings all of that together for us in ways that touch every single one of our senses that trigger so many neural connections firing in the brains. That's why you can have a taste or a smell or simply a memory of one of those experiences 
and it can flood you with the emotions like what you're feeling right now because food is is nourishment it's connection it's all of these different things that we're trying to convey to one another in ways that touch literally every part of our bodies, our minds, our spirits. Yeah, and you know, it's it's interesting because in all the time here, I haven't felt as nostalgic as, as during the Shanghai lockdown that we were in the midst mm-hmm. of for two months. And it's because yeah. I was forced to cook, you know, mm-hmm. and you know, like, mm-hmm. and, 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 and I, and I wrote a little blog article about this because it was like, you know, for, for many, understandably, the, the lockdown really was, was really such like a, a harsh imposition, but, you know, I mentioned that my experience was slightly different than that because, you know, I spoke to my mom even more regularly than I normally do, you know, so instead of a few days a week, it was honestly like every 12 hours. And, yes. and I talked about, you know, recipes and, you know, how to make things because, you know, sometimes I was like, well, you know, I'm kind of sick of, you know, boiling it or <laughs> sauteing it. So like, mm-hmm. how, how do I use my oven in a different way? Like, you know, how do I, how do I, what, what do I add with something else to, to make it, to make it, you know, even more special. And, and honestly, yeah. I think that that's, that's why I am so, you know, emotional now about it because it was like, it was like, I was, you know, it was like, we were speaking the same language you know, it was like we were in the same room. It was like we were hugging each other. You know, when you mentioned hug, it was like we were hugging each other through the nature of food, through through, through the ability to cook together, you know? Yes. Um, so yeah, yeah. So that's why I say food really um, has, has meant a lot to me, not just for the sake of mm, yum, 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 my stomach's full. It's, you know, wow, what is the story that is being told? And all of those stories I feel in my life have been surrounded with, you know, good food, good food, mm-hmm. good people, good times. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And you're absolutely right. Those tough, tough initial weeks and months for some people in different parts of the world with lockdowns were Mm -hmm. incredibly painful and Mm -hmm. jarring and uncomfortable in part because we are really social human Mm -hmm. beings. We desire that connection. And I feel like, you know, listening to you describe how you (laughs) reconnected through food is really exemplary of what my experience was during the lockdowns as well. My family and I were in Tirana, the capital of Albania, Mm -hmm. for those initial lockdowns at the time. And I have never connected, I think, with as many people online Mm -hmm. for cooking lessons, for sharing stories, for transmitting, again, the history, the culture, the cooking techniques, the love through food. And it was as challenging as the time was, it was also really rewarding for me personally, because I always had this fear, you know, when starting this online cooking school. Well, you know, after spending more than 15 years teaching, especially young children, you know, usually under the age of six, 
in person, you know, where we can touch and smell and see and taste everything together as we were cooking, uh, you know, I wasn't sure how well that would really transmit mm-hmm. online. But uh, with all of those lockdowns and everybody jumping on Zoom, you know, mm-hmm. I had already been doing that with my cooking school for years when the pandemic rolled around and it felt like suddenly everybody was getting up to speed on what I had already begun to learn, which is that we really can still connect with one another in meaningful ways across long distances, across these digital means. And one of the ways that we can really feel the kinds of connection that we have in person is if we're sharing something else, something tactile, something meaningful, something that's really memorable mm-hmm. together, even from yeah. far away. And in addition to, you know, recognizing the importance of food, you know, the dependence on food, you know, tackling and working through the issues of very emotional eating, you know, during what was obviously a very emotional time for us worldwide, you know, we also had the chance to really connect in loving and meaningful ways. And people had more time mm-hmm. in and around the kitchen, like you experienced, to be able to get their hands messy. And that's what I love encouraging my clients to do is to play with their food. And so people had time to play and they were more focused on and surrounded by food. And it was just so much fun. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. How, how much longer do you guys hope to stay in Mexico? Like what, what are your, your goals for the, your, your culinary business? Oh goodness. Well, every time we pick up and move, I think, okay, now I've got, you know, this whole series of new recipes, dishes, ingredients, ideas that need to go into another book. Mm-hmm. So I feel like I'm constantly working on a cookbook or a new cooking course in mm-hmm. some way, shape or form. Um, we plan on being here in Mexico for another few months mm-hmm. at least, but where we'll go from here, um, not quite sure yet. <laughs> um, you know, there are still um, legal and administrative hurdles in traveling to some of the places that we want to go. So there are rumors of lots of Asian countries beginning to open up to tourism again. Mm-hmm. So as I said, we would love to get back to Japan which is where my son was born. So that's always a consideration potentially. Mm -hmm. But, you know, now that we're back here in North America, we could continue further south, maybe explore more of Central and South America even, which we have yet to do. Um, And then of course, you know, we left the Balkans and Eastern Europe under less than ideal circumstances. As I said, you know, returning to the United States for a death in the family. So that was more sudden than we were expecting. And there are things that we would like to do again in Eastern Europe. So uh, again, one of the beauties of this wonderful world schooling lifestyle that we live is we can continue to learn and work and grow wherever uh, the opportunities happen to take us. And while I'm not quite sure where that might be or what that looks like just yet, Mm -hmm. I'm always excited for the possibilities that the future holds. Thanks for tuning in to part one of this episode. Don't forget to tune in to part two. 
I hope you enjoyed the show. Remember to hit subscribe and to stay updated, head over to arewehomeyetpodcast.com. I'm Jalila Clark. See you next time.